0: Hello and welcome to the Risk Map podcast from Control Risks, the specialist risk consultancy. I'm your host, Charles Hecker, and across five episodes, I'll be speaking with our regional experts to find out how the top five risks we've identified for 2020 have been evolving and will continue to evolve in different regional contexts as the world navigates its way through the disruption, unrest, and economic shocks caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. In this episode, we'll be looking at the Americas. Let's say hello to our experts. Jackie Day is a partner in the firm and our director for crisis and security consulting across the Americas region. Jackie's dialing in from Washington, D.C. Hi, Jackie. Hi, Chuck. Good to be with you. Also joining from Washington, D.C. is Jonathan Wood. Jonathan is a director in our global risk analysis unit, our lead North America analyst, and our deputy global research director. Hi, Jonathan. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Chuck. Hi, Chuck. And rounding out their dream team is Tomás Fávaro, a director in our global risk analysis unit in our Sao Paulo office. Tomás, hi, how are you? I'm good, Chuck. Thank you for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here with you all. What I'd like to do is take us on a tour through some of the top five concerns for Risk Map 2020. Let's start with what is our number one concern in the top five, and that has to do with leadership and the stability of leadership globally and the coordination of leadership regionally. In the Americas, we have everything from Justin Trudeau all the way up north in Canada to people like Jair Bolsonaro all the way down south in Brazil. So why don't I start with you, Jonathan, in Washington, D.C.? What's your view on the quality, the strategic outlook and the coordination of leadership regionally?
1: Chuck, I think one of the things that has clearly emerged out of this COVID 19 crisis is the importance of leadership. And you see this reflected in the different approaches and also the success that different countries have had at managing their pandemics. You know, the main dividing line is not between developed and emerging economies, their level of income their type of government, it really has seemed to come down to the quality of leadership. And in particular, the seriousness with which that leadership took the crisis, the speed with which they implemented both restrictions on social mobility, but also programs to increase things like testing and tracing. And also I think the level and quality and transparency of communication from political leaders.
0: So Jonathan, how would you rate some of the leaders in your patch?
1: It's very clear when you look at the case figures for the U.S. and certainly the haphazard approach that the U.S. administration has taken to managing this epidemic, that there has been a lack of leadership from the top. And that's led to some uncertainty about, especially for business, about where and when decisions are going to be made. And I think we're seeing that play out in the U.S. in particular, in the dis- the differences and the divergence between for example, federal level guidance and state level guidance. Uh, Some cities going ahead and doing their own thing as well. And companies in the U.S. are really dealing with a very diverse environment. I would contrast this with what's happened in Canada, where, you know, the federal government early on essentially stepped back and left it up to the provinces to implement and impose their own restrictions. But there was fairly good coordination between the provinces and the federal government and among the provinces themselves around things like interprovincial travel and quarantines and that type of thing. And, well, the, the numbers really tell the tale. The epidemic is subsiding in Canada, whereas now, as we go through reopening, it's actually resurging in the U.S.,
0: Jackie, I'm going to come to you in two seconds on the topic of leadership at companies and how companies navigate the patchwork that Jonathan is describing. But I, I want to go to Tomás for a second, because I think I heard you chuckle in the background there when we talked about the quality of leadership. And, and Tomás, you know that we have to talk about Bolsonaro and we have to talk about Brazil. So give us a start with 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 Bolsonaro. But then. Tell us a little bit about what's happening around the rest of the region.
2: Just first, I wanted to just complement Jonathan's point and say that um, when we look at, you know, the COVID-19 impact on leadership, it's actually interesting to see how it has impacted leadership, but the most part, in a positive way, most presidents and political leaders have actually received a popularity boost or some kind of increased political support on the back of the pandemic. This is a phenomenon that we see not only in the Americas, but globally that we call rally around the flag that we're, people cling for leadership in times of crisis. But of course, this only takes place in the areas, regions or countries where there is a true leadership to cling to as Jonathan also mentioned, you know, you do have cases in North America whereby that leadership has been questioned. And certainly in Latin America is no uh, different story. I think the two countries that probably have achieved the highlight through negative ways are Brazil and Mexico, whereby we had uh, presidents who were trying to go against the tide and put forward ideas and policies which were at odds with what public health experts were suggesting
1: Tomas makes a great point there, which is that we have really seen some strong examples of leadership emerge out of this crisis, including from unexpected directions. You know, as we think about the political landscape, both in this region and globally over the medium term, I I suspect we're going to see a lot of political campaigns uh, and bids for political leadership that are predicated on how well a mayor, a governor, a particular politician handled
0: or was perceived to have handled this crisis. Jackie, let's talk about how companies respond to the pandemic. All of our clients have footprints that are enormous in their scope and, and, and stretch, particularly in the Americas, stretch all the way up and down the region. How is decision-making impacted when a company has to confront a, a varied landscape like the one that Tomas and Jonathan are describing?
3: the prolonged nature of this and the intensity of the decision-making cycle and the weight of some of those decisions and the consequences for people's lives and livelihoods and all the rest of it I, just all of that taken together i think has led to pretty extraordinary decision fatigue and created significant burnout in in pretty senior leadership teams so there are a couple of different ways different companies have have worked to guard against that right from everything from designating alternates taking time off and embracing their own need to take care of themselves and then modeling that behavior for their entire workforce and and that actually when we've seen leadership leadership teams do that and sort of own the reality of the situation that we're in and sort of embracing the imperfection uh, of how we're all forced to operate right now. it, It rings really authentic Right, and it also signals a, a level of empathy and connection with the workforce in terms of you know we're all in this together, that I think is is helping to make organizations as well as the individuals on the leadership teams more resilient as as a whole. So it's a fascinating study, and you know we'll we'll be able to assess over time who's done it better or worse than than others. But I think generally speaking, that's what we've seen good looks like.
0: Jackie, in your conversations with our clients, have you actually heard? Any comments, and they don't have to be partisan comments, but have you heard any frustration with the politics of the pandemic? Are there executives out there saying, you know, I wish that so-and-so had said X or I wish that the governor had said Y? Can you hear any discussion of, of the politics of the pandemic inside our clients' organizations?
3: Yes, but it, it sort of comes in a different form. People are very wary of commenting <laughs> and revealing their personal politics, I think, in, in crisis discussions. But particularly with our US based clients, heard a lot of them saying that they cannot trust or rely wholesale on government guidance and even public health guidance at this point because they feel that it is true politically and economically driven and in the U.S. in particular in election year. And therefore, they feel they need to fend for themselves more now than ever.
2: And I think an interesting aspect to watch on that front is that government policy towards, you know, reopening the economies or uh, shutting down economies or providing lockdown is not the only dialogue that companies are having to have with governments, right? If you look at sectors that have been extremely badly affected by the pandemic, you know, such as aviation or tourism, in many ways the government's response uh, can be the difference between a company surviving or going bankrupt. And for highly regulated sectors, for example, the energy sector, the way the government will decide how to split or share the pain and the losses that are coming inevitably associated with the pandemic is also forcing companies to sit down at the negotiating table with governments across the board. So it does add further to the point about you know the quality of the leadership and how to best communicate with the variety levels of again quality leadership that Jonathan alluded to, because companies are at a moment where you know political risks are just skyrocketing and they're being forced to have dialogues, um, many unpleasant dialogues, actually, with governments to a level that they haven't witnessed it, you know, in in years or decades.
0: Tomas, can I stick with you for just a moment? Because you mentioned the heightened level of political risk that we're all experiencing now and that companies are experiencing. And right after that comes a heightened level of economic risk. Can you talk a little bit about how economies are performing across your region? And is there a very direct correlation between the quality of leadership and the stewardship of the economy?
2: No country or region can claim to be or to have been well prepared to deal with this pandemic. You know, this was unprecedented in so many ways, you know, the the scale, the depth, the length. But I think it's fair to say that Latin America was... In general, particularly ill-placed to deal with the pandemic from the outset, because it was already coming from a long period of mounting fiscal challenges and slow economic growth. If you look at key metrics such as fiscal deficits and debt-to-DDP ratios, Latin America was already in a bad position even prior to COVID-19. So it's absolutely understandable that you know economic forecasts for the region, at least for 2020, are dreadful across the board, but key to watch going forward is how exactly the policy responses and the leadership responses that you're alluding to, you know, that vary widely from each country will accelerate or disturb the recovery, right? I think countries that manage to control to some extent the pandemic relatively well and soon like Uruguay are certainly well placed to, you know, make a head start on the economic recovery. There are some countries which did well in the beginning such as Chile and Peru, They had some initial success stories to tell, but both countries are now actually struggling with increased levels of contagions and probably have another set of countries like Brazil, for example, which had had a ill-placed response from the start, which is in many ways likely to prolong the negative effects of the pandemic and delay the economic recovery when that happens.
0: Jonathan, I think you know where this question is going to head, and that is that American voters typically cast their ballot based on how the country's economy is performing, and they will be casting ballots in November. Tell us a little bit about the politics and the economics of what's going on in the United States, and, and then we'll merge from that into a, a slightly broader conversation about what's happening in November.
1: This is going to be an unprecedented election in, in several ways. Perhaps the most significant is that it will be taking place during a continuing, you know, public health crisis that has both significant implications for the economy, as you describe, as well as significant impact on how voting and the election itself is conducted. Now, speaking purely from the economic standpoint, coming into 2020, of course, the US had one of the world's strongest economies, historically low unemployment, historically high stock prices and polling indicated that people were generally positive about their economic future. And of course, COVID-19 brought this all crashing down. And as a result, this has really compromised, if not fatally compromised, President Trump's reelection chances. We are in the midst of the deepest economic recession by some metrics since the Great Depression nearly a hundred years ago, and certainly one that is far deeper than the global financial crisis just 10 years ago. And even if there is a sharp rebound in things like consumer spending and employment over the course of the next few months before the election, unemployment is going to remain very high. People's savings and economic futures are going to remain much dimmer than they were before this crisis. And they're going to take that feeling into the election itself. And in particular, we think that the economic situation Will cut into the president's support among those independent voters who might have been willing to overlook other policies they disliked to keep the economy going.
0: Jackie, I'm sure a lot of companies are sort of hedging a bit, or at least looking towards November nervously. And Tomas, you know, north south trade is so critical in the Americas. How do companies and how do other countries prepare for? what will be a very bumpy election season, no matter what the outcome.
3: Sitting with a lot of the executive crisis management teams here and, and hearing sort of how they're, they're thinking about all of this. I think the, the first is that, you know, they continue to embrace scenario planning and analysis as an effective way to think through and try and anticipate what might be ahead and how to best prepare for differing outcomes, whether it's worst case, most likely, or or best case. And and that's obviously going to vary across different companies, different sectors, etc. But I think, you know, we're seeing a lot of them do that as a a means of dealing with the continued sort of uncertainty and volatility. And then the other, I think, is, is just, you know, everybody has found a way, whether they had the capabilities in place before or not, to really ramp up their ongoing monitoring activities. And irrespective of sort of how sophisticated or mature those monitoring capabilities might be, they can now be and are being directed and and leveraged to look at sort of flashpoints for protest activities and monitoring for the latest inflammatory statement in a certain state or city, or even at the national level and layering that against sort of critical locations for the business that absolutely need to protect and ensure that the operations can continue. So they're sort of linking together more strategic horizon scanning, monitoring capabilities with more, operational, contextual monitoring, sort of on the ground, and then preparing their contingency and response plans around that, because it's, it's just not possible to handle it all at once. But that seems to be the way that most are leaning right now. And I think for countries in Latin America, if I may add to that, there's only one
2: leader in Latin America who has wedded his political future to that of a presidential candidate in the U.S. elections, and that is Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil, who has attempted to establish a strategic alliance with Trump more than with the U.S. more broadly. So I think the stakes are very high for you know Brazil's and Brazil's foreign policy in November. For most other countries in Latin America, I think it's fair to say that most governments are more or less prepared to continue having positive relationships with the U.S., regardless of the results
3: of what is likely to be a very contentious elections no doubt i think we're we're seeing it across the region so latam and north america in, inclusive is companies seem to be getting better at answering the so what question and saying, okay, so here's what's going on, there's so much information digest, we absolutely need to zero in on so what, what does this mean for me and what are we gonna do about it? And I do think that you're seeing sort of an overall improvement in their ability to, to filter all of that and answer those critical questions so that their response is more effective.
0: You know, that's an absolutely fascinating process, and I'm glad that you get to be in those rooms when those processes are ongoing. Jonathan, let's talk about one of the top five elements that we've actually discussed in a different podcast that's available on the website, and that is activism. Um, Tell us a little bit about how civil unrest and social activism is reacting to the pandemic in the United States.
1: So in our Global Insight podcast, we talked a lot about the recent wave of civil rights, anti-racial discrimination, and anti-police brutality protests in the US. And I think there's an interesting overlap between that discussion and this question of leadership, because certainly one of the things we are seeing happen very quickly, both politically and in the business space, is both companies and political leaders trying to stake out leadership on this extremely important issue and one that is clearly unresolved in the US context. And the COVID-19 crisis itself, we certainly view as something that dovetails with and overlaps with this broad push for both economic and racial and social justice in the US, in particular, the fact that you have a crippling economic recession, that you have a public health crisis that has disproportionately impacted lower-income people and people of color in major U.S. cities, this is feeding into these latent and long-standing concerns about racial equality and racial discrimination, and undoubtedly the crisis itself is also making available, you know, millions of people at a time of very significant economic dislocation to protest in the street and demand, you know, fundamental changes, both in you know, law enforcement or policing, but also in the economy itself. And I think in 2020, we have this very interesting combination, very difficult combination for business in particular of a historic public health crisis, a historic economic Collapse, a very, what was already going to be a very tense US election year, and an increasingly challenging geopolitical environment. All of these things are converging this year to support that activism trend.
0: Jackie, on the heels of Jonathan's remarks about activism and civil unrest in the region, I'm sure that companies have sensed the enormous security challenge. But also the, the integrity and, and ethical and moral challenge of what's been happening in the United States over the past few weeks. Tell us a little bit about how companies are responding.
3: So there's a lot to unpack in that question. I guess you know the the first relates back to some of my earlier comments in that it's first really overtaxed a lot of the crisis management teams who have been working pretty much nonstop for in some cases the better part of six months and now they're having to contend with a second form of crisis particularly when when things were trending towards more more violence and looting and that sort of thing now that's calmed down a bit a bit I think the level of intensity and the impacts to to businesses has has come down a bit but there is a sort of broad understanding acceptance and expectation that unrest will continue, certainly up until the election, or at least until, you know, more enduring change is brought and reform is brought about. I think as a result of that, companies are are struggling with the right way to prioritize focus on the dual issues of ongoing COVID return to work related issues and the best way to handle that, particularly as we're seeing, you know, spikes in infection rates as certain states have, have reopened and people have returned to work. But at the same time, you know, they're having to monitor for disruptions caused by, you know, ongoing protest activity and then communicate about that at the same time. So that's that's kind of a lot to, to handle at, at once. And it's in some cases meant that there have been sub teams who have been organized to focus on one issue over the other. But it just speaks all the more to the need for buckling down for the long haul and making sure that everyone sort of takes care of themselves to be able to continue making effective decisions and onward actions associated with that. The only other thing I would say on this topic is uh, I think a lot of our clients and companies are now watching very closely to see if there will be a commensurate uptick in cases of COVID related to just the mass gatherings and sort of that practical angle. So I think we can expect to see more there and everyone's sort of cautiously monitoring to see if that then means they have to change course in decision making.
0: Tomás, if we turn to South America, in 2019, Santiago, Chile was one of the global focal points of protest and civil unrest. And we had long been forecasting that that sort of unrest, whether it was focused at governments or focused at companies, would intensify. Uh, What's your perspective? um, Sitting in Sao Paulo, how do you see the rest of the year unfolding in terms of protest? So
2: the first effect of the pandemic on social unrest dynamics was actually a suppressive effect and the best example of that is precisely Chile. Chile witnessed a wave of protest activity in the in the second half of the uh, 2019 and I think a variety of stakeholders and individuals in Chile expected a rebound of that protest movement starting in March. And we did see in the first couple of weeks of March, you know, some protest activity picking up, but that was very quickly suppressed as the country entered this new social distancing paradigm brought by the pandemic. And this is, in many ways, a similar situation across Latin America. But what we see and expect is that the situation is actually very likely to change rather quickly, and we expect a rebound an escalation of social unrest Going forward for Latin America, precisely because the pandemic is likely to exacerbate the grievances you know, around poverty and inequality and many of the other social economic factors that trigger the, the wave of unrest that we saw in 2019. Pressure is building up and it's piling up. So we do expect companies to have to struggle with a higher threat of social unrest across the region. And this can be triggered again, either by socioeconomic grievances, some of these challenges are likely to be exacerbated by COVID, but also by other factors which may be directly or indirectly related to the pandemic, such as political polarization. For example, we are already seeing some trends on that front in Bolivia and to a lesser extent in Brazil as well. So this is definitely an area where we would highlight as a concern for companies operating in the region.
0: This sort of redefines the term perfect storm. Jonathan, let's turn our attention just for a moment to cyber threats in the pandemic and for the balance of 2020. How has the threat evolved?
1: Well, in the cyber threat landscape, both in the US and Canada and globally, there is still that underlying trend where threats are becoming more sophisticated, more severe, and more significant to business. But what we've seen specifically as a result of COVID-19 is an increase in cyber threat actors, both state-sponsored, but also criminal, trying to exploit and take advantage of the high level of uncertainty and new information and disinformation that's surrounding this crisis. And, you know, in the U.S., this has led to both your run of the mill scams uh, targeting both households and businesses, but also an increase in things like fraud and uh, misappropriation and and efforts to take advantage of a very uncertain economic environment and, and one in which, There's a lot of political uncertainty and unreliable information circulating out there as well. And I think it's fair to say that in 2020, you know, that cyber threat landscape continues to intensify, but it is now occurring in a year in which we have some really significant force multipliers around both COVID-19, around the economic crisis and around the U.S. political cycle.
0: Jackie, we've just heard Jonathan describe the evolution of the cyber threat in the Americas. Are companies evolving their cyber defenses, their mitigation strategies, and their approach to cyber in keeping with the changing threat?
3: The answer is yes. And there are a couple different points to to underscore here. I think, one, you see a clear demarcation between the haves and have nots. And what I mean by that is those companies that had already invested in and maintained a pretty mature or robust uh, information technology risk management capability. I mean, it stands to reason they were better equipped to then flex and add capability or capacity because they had a a more solid foundation. Those who were behind, I think, have have really struggled to add the capacity and the capability, make the right investments in the current environment. So, I mean, it's a fairly self-evident point, but I think it's it's worth underscoring because it just goes to show you that continual investment in the, the digital domain remains primary for most organizations. Jonathan made the point already about just sort of the vast new attack surface and sort of the simple fact that organizations and cybersecurity functions within them suddenly just have a much larger digital footprint, which necessarily leads to more exposure and and paths for for exploitation so that then means that already stretched teams are then having to do more and in in an environment of, of greater complexity especially when you have people returning to the office and you have a blend of folks working from home and some from the office that's a lot to deal with the new thing that we see emerging now but also of a potential hornet's nest down the road is around data privacy. There is now a lot of personally identifiable information and protected health information in particular that's being collected, shared, stored in in a lot of places these days, from the self-disclosures of underlying health conditions for health screening to return to work, all the way through to the sudden plethora of contact tracing apps we're seeing companies deploy. That represents a whole new category of exposure for businesses that don't necessarily have direct visibility or control over all that information and how it's safeguarded. It's still unclear how strict regulators are going to be across the globe, both in terms of the requirements to safeguard that information, enforcement on the back end, and really it's just a matter of time until cyber criminals find the best way to access and exploit it all for their benefit. Not really a positive note to layer in there, but I do think one worthy of flagging.
0: Jackie, thank you very, very much for, for that insight. I think we're probably just about out of time for the America's edition of the Risk Map 2020 podcast. Jackie, let me just say a huge thank you. And it's always fun to talk to you. So thanks very much for joining in.
3: My pleasure, Chuck.
0: And Tomás, also always a pleasure. Thank you for taking some time out of your day in Sao Paulo. We're absolutely delighted to have your insights.
2: Likewise. Thank you very much.
0: Jonathan, thank you very much for dialing in from Washington, DC. Uh, Chuck, thank
1: you very much. Jackie and Tomas, nice to speak with you.
0: Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Risk Map Podcast. All five episodes in this series are available now wherever you listen to podcasts, and you can explore our entire Risk Map forecast at controlrisks.com. Be sure to check out our other podcasts as well, such as the Global Insight, featuring clear business insight from a panel of our experts on a range of topics every other Monday. Or The Supply Chain, a limited series looking at the impact of COVID-19 on supply chains featuring interviews with our clients as well as analysis by our experts. To find all our podcasts, just search Control Risks wherever you listen to your podcasts and make sure to subscribe to stay updated with the newest editions. You can follow all our analysis and find out how we're helping business build organizations that are secure, compliant, and resilient by visiting controlrisks.com. Thank you and goodbye for now.